Okay, we started last week and basically we put the setting together. You'll remember there were what appear to be three questions. When shall these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And you'll remember we said that actually, though it appears to be three questions, it's really only two questions. When shall these things be? The last two are joined together by a conjunction that means they are connected. So what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Those two are put together. So it appears to be three questions. It's actually only two questions that are there. We also talked about in the Jewish mind, they saw two ages. What were those two ages by way of review? The present age, the waiting up for their Messiah, their king to come. So that was the present age. The age to come then is after Messiah has come and set up his kingdom. So that's how they thought when it came to eschatology. So when Jesus is telling them, when shall these things be? What is that referring to? The when shall these things be? The first question. What did it refer to? The destruction of the temple. Because remember the setting. Disciples are showing Jesus, hey, look at how beautiful the, the temple is. And Jesus tells them, hey, not one stone's going to be left upon another of this place. It's going to be destroyed. So when they ask, when shall these things be? They're talking about, when's it going to be that, you know, Jerusalem's going to fall and the temple's going to be torn apart? When will that be? We also talked about Matthew and Mark don't answer that question. For whatever reasons, the question that relates to when this shall be, the destruction of Jerusalem, only Luke talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, there was a question last week as to uh, why uh, only Luke talks about it, and we don't know. Someone suggested, well, maybe it's because um, Luke... Uh, was written after 70 AD, and the other two books were written before 70 AD. I checked that out. All three books were written before 70 AD. So that is not the answer as to why. Just in their purposes of who they were writing to, for it was superintended that only Luke talked about that. And so we saw that there was the sign of the city when they saw Jerusalem encircled by the armies and how all of that was fulfilled in 70 AD. So we see in the passage as we come to Matthew chapter uh, 24, in verse 2 it says, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, and we saw that was a smaller group of the disciples that came to him. It says, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them. Now, the thing that I want to point out here tonight, in the course of our study, we are zeroing in on 
the futurist interpretation of this passage. There are three different approaches to the passage. There is the futurist approach. There is the preterist approach. The preterists are going to believe that everything we're going to read and talk about here in Matthew 24 and 25 has already been fulfilled in 70 AD. Uh, my purpose is not to go through and to... Uh, uh, give to give a rebuttal to the preterist position of uh, this uh, passage. Uh, I've talked about the preterist views before, but for our purpose of this study, we're not zeroing in on that. There's another view, the historist view, which they just basically take the approach that none of this stuff is prophecy, and just basically they come up with their explanations of it. We're not delving into that as well. I mean, we can answer specific questions that people may have about things, but I, that, that would take this study and probably triple it in the length of which it's going to be if we said, okay, let's take each of these views and examine it with everything that is here. I'm just going to zero in on the futurist view, and you're going to find out that even among the futurists, there are differences of opinion as to how we should interpret some of these verses and when they occur. And those things we will talk about as we go through. But if you have specific questions about something, you know, we, we have a time to deal with those questions and talk about them. I thought it would be good before we delve in, since we're taking the futurist approach, to just give a little overview of the futurist view as it relates to the end time events. Now, even as I say this, I want you to know not everybody's going to agree with this overview that I'm going to, to give you. Because, uh, let's just take the rapture itself. There are futurist views that believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, a mid-tribulational rapture, and a post-tribulational rapture. There are even futurists who believe in partial raptures, that there will be different raptures that will occur at different times as we go forward. Now, they would base that on Jesus takes those who are watching. So if you're watching, you'll go before the tribulation. If that didn't get your attention and you're not watching by the midpoint, you'll still be left, but others will be taken at the midpoint. And then if you're, you missed both of them, you weren't watching, and you managed to live through these times, which will be a feat in and of itself. But if you live through it, then you would be there at the post-tribulational rapture that would occur. Now, how they can arrive at all of that, it's all based on that we as Christians are to be watching for the return of the Lord. And that if you're watching, you get taken. If you're not watching, you don't get taken. Uh, so that's still a futurist viewpoint. But what I've kind of given you in just a short little chart that is not drawn to scale in any way, but just kind of lists the things that that as a futurist, one who takes a literal interpretation, the passage of Scripture, how I understand and how others understand events are going to unfold in the future. 
So we would see, number one, that we are currently living in the church age, sometimes referred to as the age of grace. And we would say that the next great event on God's timetable will be the rapture of the church. We would believe, and when I say we would believe, remember, I'm not speaking for every single futurist when I say that. But I'm just saying those who would take the approach to interpreting the scriptures that I would take of a plain literal sense where it makes sense to seek no other sense, that we would generally be in agreement about these events. So that the, this great event would be the rapture of the church that is an imminent return can happen at any moment and at any time, and that there are no signs of the rapture of the church. That it could, there's nothing, that Paul expected the rapture to come in his lifetime, and there's nothing that has to be fulfilled before the rapture can occur. Right. You'll notice on the chart we have a little bit of space there between the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation period. Keep in mind, and though most of you were with me in the Daniel study, the tribulation period does not begin with the rapture of the church, but begins with the signing of the peace treaty with Antichrist. So could there be a gap there between the rapture and the signing of that treaty? Many Bible scholars will believe that there is. Now, when I was brought up as, as a, a kid, everyone that I heard teach on it, they all believed that when the rapture happened, that's when the tribulation period began. Uh, so they have a... And I don't know that anyone ever pressed them on their view there, but it's clear from Daniel, the 70 weeks begins with the signing of the tribulation period. And it just seems, and this is just, could it happen the same day that the rapture occurs? Yeah, it could happen. Could there be a week between the events? Yep. Could there be a month? Yes. Could there be several years between that? Yes, there could be. We don't know. We just know the rapture will occur, and then the peace treaty is signed that starts a seven-year period. Uh, in the midpoint, and we'll be talking about that as we go through the Olivet Discourse, at the midpoint of those seven years, the abomination of desolation takes place where the Antichrist goes into the temple and proclaims himself to be God and an image is set up in the temple for them to worship. Uh, number five, at the end of the, and the abomination of desolation happens at the midpoint of the tribulation period. So actually that number four should be slid over a little bit if we were doing it to, to scale. But midpoint of the tribulation, the abomination of desolation takes place. Three and a half years later, Christ returns. He sets up his kingdom and there is the millennial kingdom that goes on for a thousand years. We believe that to be a literal thousand years that Christ rules and reigns on the earth. That is followed by the final rebellion, 
when Satan is set free from the bottomless pit, he leads a final rebellion against God. God destroys him, and then we have the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, and then we have the eternal state. All right. That's an overview of the futurist's position. So is there any question about that? Okay, then let's jump back in to the Olivet Discourse. Okay, in this study, we're focusing on the viewpoint that this passage refers to the events that take place in the future. We are not addressing the preterist view that everything in the Olivet Discourse was fulfilled in 70 AD, uh, the, the destruction of Jerusalem. Even among futurists, there are different understandings as to when the events of Matthew 24, verses 4 to 14 take place. So let's start by reading verses, I'm going to pick up with verse 3 and read through verse 14 of Matthew chapter 24. Actually, we'll just begin with verse 4. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another, and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Okay, we're going to stop right there with verse 14, because in verse 15, uh, we clearly have a point designated for us in time, because in verse 15, it says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, and we know that's at the midpoint, because we know that clearly from Daniel. So, among futurists, as we come to these first 14 verses, there are three different views that relate to them that we want to talk about. Uh, there is a view that's called the inter-advent. And there's actually, they're divided into two groups, so we have two different interpretations there. That believe that verses 4 to 14... Describe the general characteristics of the time leading up to the second coming of Christ. The events described intensify as the age moves to its conclusion. They would divide the passage up this way. 
So the first group of inter-Adventists would break it up. Verses 4 to 14 refers to the time up to the rapture of the church. Verses 15 to 26 refer to the tribulation period. And verses 27 to 31 refer to the second coming. Those are right there in your notes uh, on that. All right, so that's one viewpoint as they look at these verses. Then there's another viewpoint that also believes in the inter-Advent view, and they would divide the passage up this way. Verses 4 through 8 are general signs of the age in which we live. Verses 9 to 14 refer to the first half of the tribulation period. Verses 15 to 26 refer to the second half of the tribulation period. And verses 27 to 31 refer to the second coming of Christ. Uh, you see the differences between the two? Well, what you say, well, what's the big deal with that? What difference does it make? All right, let, if the inner Advent age view or views if they are a correct interpretation, then it would mean that earthquakes, famines, and the appearance of false Christs would be constantly on the increase as we approach the tribulation period. However, if these items are references to the first half of the tribulation, then wars, earthquakes, famines, and false Christs during any part of the church age would not constitute prophetic signs. This explains why some futurists believe that increasing wars, earthquakes, famines, etc. are prophetically significant. In contrast, others do not think that they are prophetically significant since these verses refer to global events during the seven-year tribulation. So follow with me what we're talking about based on how we interpret these passages, these verses. If verses 4 to 14 are referring up to the time, up until the rapture of the church. That's one view. Or verses 4 to 8 in that second inner advent view, believe it's verses 4 to 8 that are general signs of the, the age, though they, dis, they, they differ on where the division comes on these things. But they both believe that what's going on in our world today are all signs, basically, or are all indications of the coming of the rapture. You, you follow what I'm saying? So the passage talks about this is the beginning of birth pains. They would say it's not the birth pains yet. It's the beginning of the birth pains. It's the signs of the earth. Okay. And so maybe you've heard messages preached, you know, uh, I, I think of the, there's a song that starts, signs of the times are everywhere. Okay. They would look, and, and, and you'll see this in the news, every time there's an earthquake in our world, uh, 
it's okay. Maybe this is it. Maybe the rapture is coming now because especially we've got an earthquake in places we haven't heard of before. Uh, so let's, let's look at those signs that are the things that they would be referring to. So they would be saying, depend on your division, uh, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Okay, people going around claiming to be Christ, uh, that, that's all, that's not part of the tribulation period, that's all leading up to the, and you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, and you know, you when has there ever been a time that we've had more wars going on in the world? And every time that a war breaks out in the world, what's being said? Okay, well, this is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 24. And he says, see that you not be alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Right? Uh, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And later we're going to go through these verses and see exactly what these verses are saying and mean. But this will be, okay, the race wars that we have, the different battles going on. All these, verse 8, are but the beginning of the birth pains. So this group would say these are all general signs of the age that we live in. And so, therefore, it's very significant. Uh, beginning with verse 9, they would say, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. Okay. So, because the word tribulation is used first there in verse 9, they would say from verse 9 to verse 14, that would refer to the tribulation period. But the things before verse 9 are just general signs of the age in which we live. And then verse 15 is the second half of the tribulation period. While this particular group would say, well, actually the tribulation period itself begins with verse 15 and what's talked about there. Now notice they're all in agreement that verse 27 to 31 refer to the second coming. Of Christ. All right, so those are two of the viewpoints. For the purpose of this study, we're not adopting either one of those viewpoints. All right. I think both of these viewpoints are wrong. And that the correct viewpoint, now when I say correct viewpoint, I'm giving you my understanding. I am not claiming to be the expert that is going to refute everybody who believes what. There are very good Bible teachers, and I have heard probably hundreds of messages that talk about the signs that are going on around us. And uh, one of my problems with viewing these things as signs is the fact that I believe in the imminency of the return of Christ so that nothing is... Now, many of these guys believe in the imminency of Christ's return as well. They would just say, these are characteristics of what they have. 
So for the purpose of this study, we will follow a view that verses 4, and that should be to 31, refer to the tribulation period, with verses 4 to 14 referring to the first three and a half years. If this interpretation is correct, Matthew parallels the first five seal judgments found in Revelation chapter 6. So if the viewpoint I'm presenting to you is correct, one of the reasons for adopting this would be because it lines up with what the book of Revelation tells us is going to happen in the end times. Now to help us with this, I need four individuals to be readers for me tonight. All right, come up here. You get in chair one, Sue. I'm going to have you come up here so I can pass the microphone back and forth. All right, come on up. Sue's a heretic. She has a different view of uh, translation of the Bible than the ESV. So we'll just, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, everybody. Don't, don't. All right, I need two more readers. Come on. One more. Okay. 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 You got your Bible with you? You got a phone. Okay. See the difference in generations. How many of you are using your phone for a Bible here tonight? Raise your Oh, more than I expected. Wow. <laughs> That's a big issue in some churches today, just so you'll know, whether or not you can use a phone or an iPad to preach for. Okay, Ron, I want you to go to Revelation chapter 6, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Now, what we would expect to find if what I'm presenting to you is correct, that there should be alignment between the passages as relates to these events. So let's start. The book of Revelation reveals to us, was revealed to John. He's, he's looking out. He's seeing things that are going to happen in the future. And it begins with a series of seal judgments that are open. So read verses 1 and 2 for us of Revelation chapter 6. Wait a second. I think that should be on. Hello? Hello? Okay. Okay. All right. Now Revelation I chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. Okay, so we have a rider on a white horse that is coming out to conquer. All right. Who later in the book of Revelation is going to ride on a white horse? With, all right, all right. 
Most people agree that this writer from Luke chapter 6 is the Antichrist writing upon the scene. And that he is, so we see, a false messiah, a false prophet that is there. Matthew 24, verse 5. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. All right, and then down in verse 11, which is also during the first part of the tribulation period. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Okay. Mark chapter 13, verse 6. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. Luke 21, verse 8. And he said, take heed that you not be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Okay, so we have a prediction of false messiahs, false prophets, and using the book of Revelation chapter 6 as the beginning of this period taking place, we see that happening here as the tribulation is beginning. Now, the next thing that's talked about is wars. So we'll just start with Luke 21, 9, and we'll go back the other way then with this. Luke 21, verse 9. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. All right. Then uh, Mark 13, 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that it is not yet the end. All right, Matthew 24, verses 6 and 7. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Okay. And then Revelation 6, verses 2 to 4. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. All right, you see the consistency with the Olivet Discourse and with what's occurring here in the book of Revelation, all right? Let's, let's jump down to verses 5 to 8 in Revelation 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse... And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Okay, and then Matthew 24, 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be various famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Okay, Mark 13, 8. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and there will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of the birth pains. In Luke 21, verse 11. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Okay, now let me pause here because I don't think we need to go through the rest of the chart and look at each one of these. Now, obviously, the three gospel accounts are all giving the account of the Olivet Discourse. The book of Revelation written by John is not an account of the Olivet Discourse, but it's John is revealing what God has given to, to him to share what's going to happen in the future. So I think it's remarkable how well these events line up with what's occurring in the book of Revelation and very close to the exact order as they are being revealed in the book of Revelation. That's why I take the viewpoint that all of these things refer to events that are going to happen during the tribulation period. Someone will say, well, what about these things going on in our world now? To a degree, and one of the criticisms sometimes that's, that's made, all you Christians, every time there's an earthquake, there have always been earthquakes. Have there always been earthquakes? Yes. Yes. Have there always been wars? Yes. Have there been famines in the past? Yes. Pestilences in the past? All right, all of those things have always been going on since the time that Christ was here. But there's something special about these things, and we're going to talk about that now. Okay, thank you guys for helping me out. All right, any question about that? So as we look at the passage, and we look down through the first seven verses, where Jesus has talked about wars, rumors of wars, false prophets, uh, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, uh, famines and earthquakes in various places. We're told all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. It's not the conclusion of them. It is the beginning of those things happening here during the tribulation period. Uh, Matthew 24, 8, uh, that when it talks about this being the beginning characterizes verses 4 to 7 as the beginning of birth pains. It may be a reference to what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 30, verses 6 and 7. Ask now and see. Can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. So the prophet has complained. There's coming this day when the distress is going to be so bad uh, 
upon people. And so this idea of this is the beginning of birth pains. Now, women, you understand that better than any man in this room understands birth pains. What can you tell me about birth pains? <laughs> okay. They start off little. Yeah, I, I said that once in a message, and, you know, I, 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 they, they start off and they're not so bad. And I had a lady talk to me after the service was over and, and, and said, uh, you've obviously never experienced birth pains, or you wouldn't be saying they're not so bad when they start. Uh, I, I do know you also have a phenomenon that's before birth pains, that they're called what? Braxton Hicks. Braxton Hicks. All right, Braxton Hicks. What are Braxton Hicks? They are false labor type. Now, some ladies have told me they hurt as bad as labor hurts, but they are false labor, and, you know, women run to the ready to deliver their baby when the Braxton Hicks, and the doctors say, no, you guys need to go back home. It's not quite time uh, yet. That's what I think is going on in our world now with these things. I don't think they're signs. I don't think they're the things that Jesus predicted. But I think they are just uh, the Braxton Hicks of the, the birth pains that are coming. So what else do you know about birth pains, ladies? They get stronger. As time, All right, as time goes on, they get stronger. And what else happens? They get closer and closer together. I think this image of birth pains being used for the tribulation period, that all those things are true of it. Because as we read what's going to happen during the tribulation period, in particular as you're reading through the book of Revelation and what's going on here, the judgments get closer and closer together and they become more severe and more severe as we go along. And that's why I think birth pains is the word that is used to describe what is going on. So in verses 4 to 5 and 11, when it talks about false Christ, it's not a single person, but many. And among them is going to be the ultimate Antichrist. Now, the book of... Uh, John writing in 1 John tells us there have always been antichrists among us. There are antichrists in the world today. Those who, and actually as we understand the word antichrist, it actually has two kind of connotations. One, anti, when we think of something as anti, we think it is what? Something that's against something else. But the Greek word that's used for anti means not only is it someone who is or something that is against, it is against by taking the place of. So the Antichrist, not only is he opposed to Christ, but he presents himself as a Christ. 
And so that's part of what we're, you're seeing even with the abomination of desolation. He's setting up an image and you are to worship that image, putting himself in the place of Christ. All right, there are wars and rumors of wars. The word used for wars refers to a whole course of hostilities. You'll hear about these wars, nations against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms. The words seem to indicate that there will be ethnic, racial, as well as national confrontations. Typically, when we think of nation against nation and kingdom of against kingdom, what do we think of? Typically, if I say two nations are in a war with one another, what do we think? All right, countries. Well, that may be encompassed here, but this is also breaking it down. The words would mean like people groups. That, and, and even among many nations, you have different people groups that are within what we would recognize as a nation. So there are going to be wars that are going on there. There are going to be racial divisions where they will be fighting with one another. As well as, so you're going to have ethnic, you're going to have racial, and um, you're going to have national confrontations. Now these ethnic confrontations, I don't think we understand that to the degree that maybe some people living in Europe understand the ethnic, I mean, now I'm, you know, as Americans, because we are a relatively young nation on the world scene, uh, we don't have that long, long history. You know, there, there are ethnic groups in Europe that will say, well, th th this group sinned against us. Well, when did they do that? Well, 500 years ago. This is what they, they hold on to those divisions. Have some of you talked to people that recognize that and that see that, that this group doesn't like this group? I mean, even look around, to me, even look around town at how many different types of Orthodox churches we have. Why do we have those different Orthodox churches? Because of divisions. You know, the Serbs don't like the Greeks. You know, the, whatever other groups that are in there within those people groups. Well, th these types of things are going to be magnified here in the wars and battles that are going on. Uh, we're, we're told in, in verse 6 that believers are not to be frightened by this. The word that's used there to be frightened means to be scared out of your wits. We also know from Revelation chapter 6, verse 8, this will be a time in which one quarter of the world's population will be killed. Let's look at Revelation 6, 8 for a moment. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. 
So one quarter of the world's population is being wiped out here in the first half of the tribulation period by war, pestilence, disease, by famine. And, and typically what we see here as well is that famine tends to follow wars because people haven't been able to grow the crops that they need to grow in order to feed the world's population. Uh, verse 7, the famines may be a result of the warfare that precedes them. Luke 21, 11 says, there will be great earthquakes. These are not ordinary earthquakes, but great huge ones that will take place. In verses 9 to 10, there'll be persecution and martyrdom that is going on. Verse 9 opens with, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. Then is a word that means at that time or simultaneously, tribulation will occur. It speaks of martyrdom also happening. This is also very consistent with what we read in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers would be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Many will stumble, betray, and hate one another. Also it talks about in verses in verse 10, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. This word for fall away has its roots in the word from which we get our word stumbling block. So what we're going to have are false professors will turn against and betray true believers. And true believers will be hated throughout the world. Now, primarily, as we understand the Olivet Discourse here, Jesus is, is speaking and he's talking about the future for the Jewish nation, for Jewish believers, and all that's going to happen on this time. But it also applies throughout the whole world to those who are believers and followers of Christ. Keep in mind, during the tribulation period, there's going to be a great multitude of people that get saved. You know, you know I kind of was brought up with this idea that, you know, the rapture occurs and then nobody gets saved after that. And, you know, everybody is, is doomed. Uh, but there is a great multitude of individuals that are going to be saved. And particularly if we think through, if indeed there is any significant amount of time between the rapture of the church and the signing of the peace treaty, 
during that time, you're going to have people being born. You're going to have people, you know, who are going to, uh, to, to grow up, that get older uh, during that period of time. So you're going to have all of that going on. But you're going to have people coming to know Christ. But also, those who are followers of, of Christ are going to be enemy number one in this world as we see the Antichrist rise to power. And that they're going to be hated, and they're going to be betrayed by others, and they're going to be put to death. Verse 11 again talks about many false prophets. And I thought this was interesting, and I think this is something that uh, I hadn't really thought about clearly before. Notice they're called false prophets and not called false teachers. False prophets were always Israel's problem. False teachers are more the church's problem. That had never dawned on me before to even think that through, that as it talks about the false prophets going on here during the tribulation period. And I I think as well as we think about it and just trying to put some pieces together, because we're talking about the first half of the tribulation period. From the book of Revelation, who else do we know that's here during this period of time? There's two special people. The two witnesses that are either Elijah or and Moses, uh, Some people say it's Elijah and Enoch. Uh, Some people say it's neither of them, just someone who's in the power of Elijah and Moses. I personally believe that it's going to be Elijah and Moses themselves coming back here to the earth. And that, and I think that's why, now look, this is conjecture on my part. There's a lot of Bible teachers that disagree. But I think, all right, how did Elijah leave this world? He was taken up in a chariot of fire. How did Moses leave this world? He died and God buried him. And what do we know from the book of Jude that relates to Moses? Huh? Yeah, they disputed and they argued. Why would they care about the body of Moses? Huh? He went to okay. Well, I think, I think the, for me, if I put the pieces together, why would Moses' body be so important? Well, if Moses is coming back, that might be a significant issue for them to argue and debate about. Okay, that's just conjecture. Now, that's not gospel truth. You got that? It's different. <laughs> We also have a time of increased lawlessness. Lawless means to disobey a specific standard. Lawlessness increases as the time of the abomination of desolation draws near. Remember, Paul calls the Antichrist the man of lawlessness. The word to increase means an unusually rapid or exponential increase. 
the increasing lawlessness will result in the love of many to grow cold. This is probably a reference to lost people. Their affection for other people will grow less and less as lawlessness increases. I never thought of it in those terms before, but just think about it as we have nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, people groups against people groups. Uh, That's going on in this. They're fighting with one another. What will that do of the people's opinions of another group? As this lawless, I, you know, what do we see happening even in our own country? In our own city. In our own thing. It would be, you know, okay, we, we have these people who have infiltrated our country, and there are people who absolutely hate any immigrants that come into our country. Now, that should not be a Christian opinion, by the way. You know, look, we can differ on whether or not, what immigration policy should be for the United States of America. We can differ, but that gives us no right to hate people. Right? As a church, we're to love even our what? Our enemies. And so, but... You see what happens when someone of a different race, and it's on both sides of the scale, when someone of a different race is seen attacking someone of your race, that there's a tendency to what? React against the whole group. And I think that's part of what's being talked about here. When it's even the cordiality in a society of people getting along with one another, that is going to grow colder and colder during this period. Because that's what lawlessness brings about. And, and Paul talks very clearly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's go there for a minute. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Beginning with verse 3, Paul writes, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. 
Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. So think about what Paul is telling us there. There's a sp- Paul was saying even in his day there was what? There was a spirit of lawlessness that was there. Do we recognize that there's a spirit of lawlessness that's present in our world today? And that is happening while the he is restraining it or holding it down. Now, I believe in the passage of different opinions of who's being referred to there, but I believe it's a reference to the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is restraining and holding back the lawlessness. Can you imagine what it will be like when that restraining force is removed? Because what we're seeing today is a restrained lawlessness, but the day is coming when those restraints are completely removed. And that's during this tribulation period. So you can see as lawlessness abounds and is everywhere, how people are going to hate one another and how this, this is just going to escalate during this period of time. Verse 13. And we need to spend a little time on this verse. With verse 12 it says, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This has nothing to do with the endurance of the saints or the perseverance of the saints. This verse. It deals with those who live through the tribulation period. Now, the basic meaning of the word saved is to keep from harm, to preserve and rescue. It is used as a reference to the doctrine of salvation. Okay, it is used as it relates this endurance of those who are saved when it comes to salvation, that those who are truly Christ will follow Christ. But it is also used for physical deliverance. The context here is the Jewish remnant who, if they endure to the end of the tribulation period, will be rescued by Christ's return and enter the millennial kingdom. Two other passages make this clear. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people will be delivered. Everyone whose name is found written in the book. So in Daniel we're told 
All right, this is going to be a time of trouble that Jacob, the nation of Israel, has never experienced. But those who lived through this period, those whose names are written in this book by God, they will be delivered from it by living through it. Luke 21, verses 18 and 19 talks about, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So what does this verse mean then, that he endures to the end, will be saved? It means he's just described what's happening here during the tribulation period. And we're just still talking about the first half. We've not entered the second half of the tribulation period, which is worse than the first half. But the one who endures to the end, the one who makes it through to the end of the tribulation will be saved. That means he goes into the millennial kingdom. We're going to get, when we get to Matthew chapter 25, what we call the judgment of the nations, the separation of the sheep and the goats, it's the sheep that go into the kingdom, not the goats. Now, I'll, we'll get to this later when we get to Matthew 25, but the passage there, two will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other will be left. That's actually return, referring to Christ's return back to the earth, and you want to be the one that's left not the one that's taken. Because the people who are left are the ones that go into the millennial kingdom. Now, that's not true at the rapture. And that's why people who see that as a rapture passage, they lose their brains when, when I talk. They lose their minds when I talk. I, I remember the first time I taught this, uh, the first church I pastored, I had some little old ladies that they were building the gallows for me. <laughs> How can you say that? Well, it's understanding the context in which the passage is found. So to endure to the end, it's not referring to salvation. You'll hear that verse used, you know, that basically that, you know what, if you better be careful that you don't commit some sins before you die. Because you have to endure to the end or else you won't be saved. That's taking that, ripping that verse right out of its context. The context of this verse is here during the tribulation period. That's what it's talking about. Okay, I chose to stop here because the very next verse talks about the, the gospel of the kingdom and then the end will come, and I think that's that we'll we'll start off fresh with that next time. Questions for tonight. Questions or insights? Let me get the microphone back there because they are recording this. And by the way, it was posted today. Someone called in, whoever you were, thank you, and said, Where's last week's? Somewhere it didn't get posted. So, in the tribulation, um, there'll be people that will love Jesus and be and die. Yes. And they will. When will they be resurrected? At the end of the tribulation. Period. At the end of tribulation. 
And all those children and all those babies, all of those people, they will be in in heaven with Jesus. At yeah, that time, that's what I believe. And during that tribulation, their spirits will go to heaven just like ours. Uh, well, the the people that are born during the tribulation period. Okay. Yeah, you know, they're not they're not going to be born and then go directly to heaven. No, they'll be born, and if they die during that time, I believe. Okay. Let me be clear on this. There is outright statements of what Scripture says. And then there are things that are sometimes implied or we're trying to put pieces together. There's not a single passage of Scripture in the New Testament that talks about that, you know, babies are, you know, for instance, some of you were asking about people during the tribulation period. When the rapture occurs... Are all babies going to be raptured? Or are they going to be here? Left here during the tribulation period? Then then you have the whole question going to be asked. Well, what about believers' babies? God's going to take their mothers and fathers away from them and leave them here by themselves to be raised by godless people? Uh, You know, I have my beliefs about that. But it's not something I can take you to a chapter and verse and say, here's a chapter and verse, and this is why I believe this. It's a little bit more complicated than that. My favorite favorite response to that is, shall not the judge of the earth do right? Exactly. That's where you have to fall back on. And that's what you fall back on, and that's what you, and I think there's some other passages that will hint at things that we can take and say, based on this, this is what I believe. But at that, I think we need to be careful in saying this is exactly what the Scriptures say. For instance, there's a lady in our church whose father is a pastor. He's a good man of God. He believes that every baby that dies goes to hell. And... Now, before, I mean, I know you're all, most of you are shocked that some, and I mean, for this lady, it was such a relief to her and such an encouragement to her when I made the statement that I believe that aborted babies, miscarried babies, and that will all be in the presence of God. Because the judge of the earth will do that which is right. You know what? That relieved her so much. And not only her, many other people in our church that I realized had never heard anyone even say that or talk about that as being a possibility. But he believed that for his reasons are, he felt to say that babies will make it to heaven is creating another way of salvation. Because the only way you can be saved is by putting faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Baby can't put faith in Christ, so therefore I must conclude that he must conclude that they are all going to hell. Well, man, I'm glad I don't have to, I'm glad I don't have that view and try to comfort a lady who has just lost her baby and say, what encouragement can I be to her at that point in time? 
And so these are the implications. But if you're asking me to point you to a verse in the Bible that says all babies go to heaven, I can't do that. But I can reason with you from a theological perspective and say this is why I believe that they do. Okay? So I don't know at the rapture and during the tribulation period what exactly is going to happen there. I have my thoughts but that's what they are. They're thoughts based on how I view God's justice and God's righteousness. All right, any other questions? That We got a little bit off uh, subject there. Yes. Okay, so the thing we need to keep in mind are those saints that are in the tribulation. They are not part of the church. Therefore, they do not have spiritual gifts but they do have the indwelling Holy Spirit because they're in the new covenant. Now, if we keep that in mind, when we are raptured, all of us that have the Holy Spirit, aren't we part of the restrainer we're going up? Isn't that referring to the rapture because the Holy Spirit is no longer here? Not in the mass forms. It is for us to do the good works that are set out for us to do. But the new, those new believers in the tribulation period, will they have any influence at all, or are they just trying to save their life and live for Jesus? Well, first of all, I don't know that I would agree that those that are saved during the tribulation and afterwards don't have spiritual gifts. Well, those are gifts given to the church, but those are also come about because of I believe, part of the blessing of the new covenant. So the, the gift of the Holy Spirit is also a part of the new covenant. So those believers during the tribulation period will all be indwelt by the Spirit of God because that's a promise that's a part of the new covenant. That would, see, keep, keep in mind, that new covenant was given to Israel first and foremost. And so because of that, we are participants in it. But that's, that's also, the, and, and we'll get into this a little bit in another week or so, about believers during the tribulation period uh, and how that uh, at the end of the tribulation period and into the millennial reign of how God is going to work with those individuals from Israel. Because at the end, all are saved. And there seems to be an indication that during the millennial period that all Jewish people will put their faith and trust in Christ throughout that millennium yes. as part of the promise of the new covenant. So, well, they're killed during the tribulation period. We're talking about those who make it to the end. Okay? That's the all. We're going to be talking about that Sunday morning. What does it mean that all Israel will be saved? Okay? We are commanded by God to pray for the peace of Israel, which we know she will never be at peace until his, he steps down onto that Mount of Olives, right? Or but we are still Today I was praying that those who would find some hearts to be open 
tribulation period, be the instrument that's used to break down their hindrance. But you can pray for that, but we're already told that's what's going to happen. I know. That God will use the tribulation period to break their stubbornness. Yes. That's, that's part of the purpose of it, is to bring Israel to salvation by breaking their stubbornness in rejecting it. But I do think when we pray for the peace of Israel, though we know there's not going to be complete peace until Christ comes, uh, don't we like to live in peace today? Are we not happy that as of right now, as a nation, we are not at war with someone? So we need to pray for that for Israel as well. And ultimately, when I pray for the peace of Israel, I also pray that Jew, the hearts and minds of Jewish people will be open to the gospel and they will be saved. Okay, that's a good note for us to end on tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. And Father, we're thankful that we know that you are in control of all things and we can trust you. And help us that we might be faithful in living for you. In Jesus' name, amen.